welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sunday School by Jeremy Brown on June 26th, Lord's Day Service. Let's go ahead and get started here. Um, Going to open in with a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you for this beautiful day. We thank you for a Sunday. We can come before you and worship. We thank you for the words you've given us and for um, the hope and the joy and um, and the peace that we find uh, in the words that you've given us. Pray that you uh, enliven it in our hearts today and, uh, and help us to understand the things that you have set out for us. In your holy name we pray. Amen. All right, so this is our fourth week on eschatology. Uh, we'll kind of wrap things up today. And um, obviously there's a whole lot that one could dig into, uh, a lot of different issues that we're not covering. A uh, couple of resources I just wanted to mention. Um, this, this is one of the better books on just a, a general introduction to postmillennialism. It's Keith Matheson's Postmillennialism and Eschatology of Hope. Um, really good book, covers a little bit of back, a lot of the things that we've covered or that I've covered in here um, and in a whole lot more depth. Um, Doug Wilson's When the Man Comes Around is a commentary on Revelation. Um, it's a very approachable, readable uh, book, and it's a good description of, um, to help understand a, a lot of the things that are going on in Revelation. Um, uh, Gary DeMar has quite a few books on the subject. Um, I have an electronic version of his Last Day's Madness, um, which is a good... It's primarily intended as a refutation of dispensationalism, um, but it covers a lot of these other passages and, and issues that we talk about um, from a post-mill perspective. Um, it's a pretty, uh, pretty detailed book. He also has one, I believe, called Wars and Rumors of Wars. I don't have that one, but uh, from what I understand, that's a full uh, analysis of Matthew 24 and goes through verse by verse to show how... Um, we can find fulfillment either in scriptures or historical events um, or proof that those things were, uh, were already fulfilled. So uh, we started off talking about um, the different views of eschatology, um, the four different major views, uh, and then um, Gage came in and talked about how scriptures point to an optimistic view of Christ's work in the world. Uh, last week, uh, Chris Wiley talked about Acts, in the book of Acts, and how, um, how it points to uh, a, an optimistic eschatology as well. Today I want to, uh, to take a little bit of a step back and, um, and basically talk about uh, the significance of the year A.D. 70, how that fits in both in Scripture and fulfillment of prophecy, uh, what that means and why that's so significant as fulfillment of a lot of the prophetic passages in Scripture. So, uh, 
let's see. So we, we've said previously that uh, Praetorists view Matthew 24 um, as well as much of Revelation as, as fulfilled in 70 AD. Um, what happened then? Well, the, um, the Jews, uh, or a group of Jews, all of a sudden decided that they wanted to establish themselves as an independent nation. They were under Roman rule at that time, and they rebelled against Rome and tried to set up their own kingdom and, and uh, no longer be subject to the Roman authorities, and Rome basically came in and crushed them. Um, Jerusalem was completely destroyed in 70 AD. It took a few years for, uh, for the siege to play out, and ultimately the temple, the walls of Jerusalem, everything was completely destroyed. Um, the only thing left was the Wailing Wall, uh, and that's you know kind of a sacred site for the Jews today because it's the one thing they have left from, from that time. Um, and the temple has never been rebuilt since then. Uh, so today we're going to talk about what does that mean, what's the significance of that in terms of, our, uh, in terms of Christianity. Then we'll talk about a number of passages that actually point to a chronology that resolves at that time. And then we'll talk about a number of other passages that, uh, and other, other factors and events that kind of match up with, um, with those things. So what is the significance of the temple being destroyed? Well, so the temple is where the sin offerings had to occur. So if you remember, and uh, Matt has talked about the different offerings in Leviticus and the, uh, the importance of those in the Jewish faith. So the sin offerings were to be brought to the priests at the temple, or at, initially at the tabernacle uh, in Leviticus, but then later on at the temple specifically. And if you don't have a temple or tabernacle, then there's no way to make Sin offerings. There's no atonement for sin without a temple. Uh, also, the temple is the symbol of God dwelling with his people. So that is where, uh, you know, initially with the tabernacle uh, in the time of Moses, we had God came and indwelt in the temple or in the tabernacle and was with the people and it was symbolic of him being part, you know, the people being all around him and part of his people. And then the temple was where that uh, or was the fulfillment of that in, um, in the kingdom era for Israel. Without the temple, God is no longer dwelling with his people. So you have no atonement for sin, and you're separated from God. So without the temple, Judaism is, is in serious shape. Uh, it's, it um, has serious issues. So it is not able to be a functional religion without the temple. Uh, and the Old Testament passages, there's a, a number of times where we talk about, or uh, where the Bible talks about um, sacrifices occurring away from the temple as a specific curse on the people. So we, talk, we see repeatedly throughout the, the Kings and Chronicles about um, this was a great king and he did great things except he didn't tear down the high places. This other one, you know, he, he was great and all that, but the high places remained. And then finally, this was a really great king. He served God and he tore down the high places. Well, what were the high places? Those were places where people were offering sacrifices to gods or possibly to God, but, uh, but away from the temple in a way that God had forbidden 
you know, he said, bring the sacrifices to the temple. They put up these high places, places where they felt they could kind of come and commune with their gods directly without having to go through the priests and through the, the ways that God had ordained for them. Uh, and so the high places were a curse on the people. Uh, it's repeatedly spoken of as that was a curse. Also, when the kingdom split, uh, when Jeroboam took the, the ten northern tribes and rebelled, so in 1 Kings, 20, or 1 Kings chapter 12, Jeroboam was worried that, hey, I've taken these ten tribes, and now if um, you know, the people are going to say, hey, we have to go back to the temple to make our sacrifices, and I don't want them to do that because then they're going to return and be subject to Jerusalem and Judea, and they're going to reunite, and I'm going to lose my kingdom. So you know what? I'm going to set up two golden calves, and we'll let people worship at those places instead, and everything will be great. Except we know everything was not great for the northern kingdom. Um, they never, from that point forward, had a righteous king. And they um, ultimately were destroyed much earlier than Ju uh, Judah as a result of it. So worship away from the temple for, uh, for Israel was a curse on the people. Uh, and then later on we get to the, the Babylonian captivity... So Jerusalem was destroyed uh, by Babylon and the people were taken away uh, into the Babylonian captivity for 70 years, which was prophesied, prophesied specifically in Jeremiah 25 and in 29. Uh, and we talked about that a couple of weeks, or re referenced that a couple of weeks ago with Daniel uh, in Daniel chapter 6, where he's up there praying, um, you know, this is the time of Darius and where he was ultimately thrown in the lion's den. And it says in there he understood from the writings of Jeremiah that there were 70 years of captivity prophesied and that they were coming to the end of it. And he was worried that about whether or not they would actually be restored or not because there was a lot of sin in Israel. Uh, and so, but they did. So they were, uh, the, some of the Israelites returned to the land, uh, 516 BC. And the first thing they did was rebuild the temple. Long before the walls and the rest of the city were restored, they built the temple. So the, uh, the walls, and we read that in Nehemiah, so almost 70, 75 years later, after the temple had been rebuilt, Nehemiah is you know, serving um, <clears throat> king of Persia, I think it's King uh, Artaxerxes the first or third or one of those, um, and he's upset because he sees that Jerusalem is still in ruin and, and the king says, oh, you know what? You go take your people and go restore the city. Well, the temple had been built 70 years earlier. or 75, something, something like that. Depends on exact, the exact date of that passage. But um, the point is, when Israel was in captivity, the, the one thing they longed for was to have the temple back, to be able to reestablish themselves as God's people and to be able to meet with him and commune with him once again. Without the temple, they were unable to do that. Now let's move to the New Testament, and I'm actually going to read uh, John chapter 2. Give me just a second here.
So John chapter 2, verse 18 through 21. So the Jews said to him, what signs do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And what they're referring to there is the rebuilding of it. So um, this is still the second temple that was built, uh, restarted in 516 BC, and Herod came in and um, did significant refurbishments on it and restored it, and it's called Herod's Temple at this point, but that's still the same temple that was rebuilt in 516 BC. So, the continuous temple. So, the 46 years is them, is all the, the rebuilding and um, improvements that they had done for it. Uh, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So we see a transition here where Jesus comes and he's now saying, you have the temple, but the temple, the true temple will be destroyed and rebuilt in three days. Jesus becomes the temple. Jesus is the atonement for sins. He is the final sacrifice. And he is the way that we meet with and come to and are... um, uh, able to come before the throne of God and to meet with him and to become his people. So Jesus is the complete fulfillment of everything that the temple was intended to be. And once we have Jesus, there's no need for this physical building. And in fact, if we were to continue using that physical building and bring sacrifices into that building, that means that we're rejecting the sacrifice that Jesus has offered. So the continuation of the sacrificial, the Old Testament sacrificial system is, um, it's an insult to the work of Jesus. Uh, And so it would be, it it needs to be completely cut off and removed altogether uh, for Jesus to be the true and only sacrifice. So the sacrificial system had to end um, and Jesus is now our uh, our new temple. Um, just a, a comment here, so the, the destruction or the, the Babylonian captivity is a huge event throughout in, in the Old Testament. There's a lot of prophetic passages that point to it. Um, the, the time of the captivity is a huge event in the, you know, the various prophets, so Daniel, Ezekiel, um, and a number of these others who are active during that captivity. Um, it's a key event in the, the outworking of um, the history of Israel. There are no New Testament passages that describe the destruction of the temple in the past tense. So all of the New Testament books, uh, and we'll talk about how some of, those, some of these passages uh, prophesy the destruction of the temple, but there is no New Testament book that says, you saw the temple destroyed and here's the significance of it. Jesus is our new temple. There's no passage that says that. And to, to not, you know, if any book of the Bible was written after 70 AD, there, it would be um, a shocking omission for that not to be mentioned. So that, that would be kind of like writing a history of World War II and specifically the Jews in World War II and never mentioning the Holocaust. It just, you, you can't do that. 
you know, this is, that was such a key event in World War II that any history of that would have to mention that. If you had any book of the Bible written after 70 AD, you would have to mention the destruction of the temple, destruction of Jerusalem. We don't see that anywhere. And really all we conclude is that all the books of the Bible were written prior to 70 AD. There are a number of authors um, who show that that's likely the case from other sources as well. Um, you'll find a number of historians that argue that Revelation was written in 90, AD 90 and several others that talk about some of the other books as well. Um, that's really difficult to, to conclude just based on the, um, the theological implications here though. Okay, so the, the destruction of the temple, destruction of Jerusalem, it has massive significance in the, uh, the outward, or the, in Christ's work because he becomes the new temple. So what does that mean? Uh, let's see, just something here. It, it does also, it would also make sense though that, you know, going from the sacrificial system and the, the temple being present, that you have some sort of transition period from the time of the temple until, you know, as Judaism is declining and going away and Christianity is on the rise. And at some point, you know, that has to just be a complete switch. The people of God are no longer Israel. The people of God are the is the church. Uh, and so we'll, we'll see how this works out here in a few minutes. So let's talk about some chronological uh, indications in prophecy. Uh, let me read from Matthew chapter 12. Start in verse 38 uh, through 42. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Okay, so we, the first part of this is pretty easy to understand. Jonah was three days in the belly of the fish, and then came out and went and preached to Nineveh. Jesus was three days in the ground, you know, in the tomb, and then was, you know, uh, rose again and proclaimed himself to be king. But that's not where this ends. He said, by the way, the people of Nineveh are going to rise up in judgment with this generation. Why is that? Well, the people of Nineveh, how long were they given? They were given 40 days to repent. Jonah went and said, hey, 40 days and the city is going to get destroyed. And, of course, Jonah got mad when the city wasn't destroyed. But, um, but they repented within 40 days. Jesus was crucified around A.D. 30. 40 years later, a lot of the Jews had not repented. So Nineveh gets 40 days, they were, pagan Nineveh gets 40 days, they repent. Righteous, righteous supposedly, Israel gets 40 years and refuses to repent. 
and they are destroyed for it. Uh, let's jump over to Matthew chapter 27. Verses 24 and 25. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. So the Israelites, when Jesus was, when Pilate had Jesus before them and they were calling, crucify him. And he said, look, I, I don't see any reason to crucify him. I'm washing my hands of it. And they invoked a blood curse on themselves and on their children. And this is not saying on us and all of our descendants after us. We see passages in the Old Testament about uh, the law, meaning it, whoever sins, that, that curse is on him. You don't extend that down to generation after generation. The blood curse was on the people that crucified Jesus and on their children. So a time frame of a generation, roughly 40 years or so, that curse would have to be uh, resolved. Um, I'm not going to jump into Matthew 24 so much. Uh, Gary DeMar, when he came, and, and if you have not, uh, or if you weren't able to see that, uh, there's a recording of um, the Theology on Tap when DeMar was here about a month and a half ago. Um, and he talks about Matthew 24 and the passage, or the fulfillment in there, as well as the, um, the section in there that says, this generation will not pass away before all these things take place. It talks about how that it means the existing generation. So there are New Testament references that suggest that these curses should unfold within a reasonable time frame, within 40 or so years. Uh, let's jump back into some Old Testament passages, especially Daniel. Um, and I'm, there's a whole lot that we could do with Daniel, and there's multiple commentaries and uh, others that deal with this in detail. Uh, I'm going to try and hit some high points here. Um, just as a side note, it's really neat to read through the, you know, the, the first six chapters of Daniel are pretty narrative-focused and about different events that happen, and then the last six are prophetic and different prophecies and how those unfold. And it's, I don't know, it's really neat to me to read those with a, a commentary that says, okay, this, this means this and this, where those connect to, because uh, he actually explicitly mentions the future Medo-Persian uh, Medio and Greek empires that they're coming. And there's, there's actually references in there to historical figures and events like the, the Seleucid Empire, Cleopatra, Ptolemy, um, and other historical figures, and it's, I don't know, it's neat to me to, to see Daniel prophesying this hundreds of years before these guys happen, and then look at my history book and say, oh, that's, that's kind of cool to see, you know, very clear prophecies unfolding in, in very clear ways. Uh, but anyway, I, uh, we talked a few weeks ago about the 70 weeks in Daniel 9, uh, and how those align perfectly well with prophesying the, uh, the coming of Christ. So after 69 weeks, it says um, uh, that he will come, or the, um, the, Messiah will be, or the Messiah will be cut off, and sacrifices will be ended, and so forth. Uh, so that actually aligns really well with Christ's death uh, as the end for the sacrificial system. 
Uh, I won't go back through that again today, uh, as much as that could be interesting in the interest of time. Uh, let's actually jump to Daniel chapter 2, though. And I'm just going to read some excerpts from here. So, verse 31 through 35. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hands, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. I'm going to go ahead and continue a little bit farther. Uh, actually, no, I'm, I'm, let me skip over. So verse 36 through 43 talks about, says that, hey, this is, refers to different kingdoms that are going to come. Uh, and then starting in verse 40 through 43, and there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron. So this is the iron uh, legs and the feet of iron and clay. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay." Uh, there are different interpretations on different pieces of this, but I think the, the key thing I want to take away from here, this is a fourth kingdom. So we don't have a, a kingdom of iron and then a separate kingdom of, or separate set of kingdoms of iron and clay. It's, it says it's one kingdom, and then by the way, it's going to become brittle, and there's ten toes. Um, so those are the key things I want to, want you to, or want to point out to you. So kingdom of iron and ten toes, ten toes present when the rock crushes the statue. So just keep that in mind. Let's jump to Daniel chapter 7. And read verses 1 through 14. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a, vision, a dream and visions of his head as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and were lifted. It was lifted from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. Quick aside, if you recall, uh, Babylon, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, there's the uh, story in, I think it's Daniel chapter 3, where Nebuchadnezzar proclaimed, you know, there was the prophecy about the tree getting cut down and about the king ultimately becoming a wild animal and eating grass and then ultimately being restored to his kingdom and being restored as a man. So, just to, 
uh, which fits really well with this first beast, which uh, previously, which also matches up with the head of gold from chapter 2 as the kingdom of Babylon. Behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side, it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, behold, a fourth beast, exceedingly uh, terrifying and, and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked out by its roots. And behold, in the horn were eyes like the eyes of man, and mouth speaking great things. And I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took a seat. His clothing was white as snow, and his hair, the hair of his head was pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire, a stream of fire issued, and came out from before him, and thousands and thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then, because of the sound of the great words of the horn were speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. And as for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Uh, let me see how far I want to read here. Uh, and I saw in night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting kingdom which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Okay, so just like in Daniel chapter 2, there were four different kingdoms prophesied. Here there are four beasts that match up perfectly, really well with these, those earlier four kingdoms. The fourth beast, again, refers to as a, a beast with iron. And with previously was ten toes, now we have ten horns. So what, and, and this is the beast that is present when, that, that ultimately gets destroyed before the throne of God when Christ is, ascends to the Father and is given authority and dominion and a kingdom that shall not pass away. Just like the rock that came and crushed the feet on its ten toes. So these things are matching up really well. So what does this ten refer to? Well, this is, there's different interpretations on it. There's uh, some authors that would say this refers to the different provinces in Rome. Um, I think a better interpretation is that these refer, and I think this is borne out when we actually match this up with the passages in Revelation that we'll hit in a few minutes, uh, that these ten toes and the ten horns are the ten emperors in Rome that, ha that occur leading up to 70 AD. So the first six emperors were Julius, Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, and Nero. So Nero's the sixth emperor. And after Nero, you had three emperors, Galba, Otho, and Vitellius, and together all three of them reigned for a total of about one year. So you had a lot of turmoil and uh, changeover really quickly. 
Um, this could be in reference to the section in here about the three horns that are uprooted and a new one taking their place. That's, that's, a, little, that's a little speculation on my part. I wasn't able to find um, someone that kind of went that route with it, but I think that makes pretty good sense. Um, the 10th, 10th emperor was Vespasian, and he took over in late 60, AD 69, right after the previous three, just before the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So he had 10 Roman emperors that come before the fall of Jerusalem. Well, let's see if that makes sense when we tie that with, uh, with fulfillment or with uh, similar passages in Revelation. So let me just uh, point out a few points real quickly. Um, the beasts, we had four beasts um, at the beginning of Daniel 7, uh, the first was the lion with eagle's wings. The second was the bear. The third was the leopard um, with four wings of a bird on its back. Uh, interesting note there. So the third empire here is the Greek empire with Alexander the Great who comes sweeping through flying like a you know, charging leopard, with, and so the wings could, you know, refer to the kind of the speed at which he conquered that whole area. Uh, but also once he, you know, Alexander died without an heir, and his empire quickly split into four different pieces. And that, that all plays out in Daniel chapter 8 through 12. Um, if you read that, it talks about the king of the north and the king of the south and all these different things. So, and those are the different kingdoms that split from the Greek empire. Uh, but four different beasts and uh, iron, ten horns. So let's go to Revelation. And Revelation chapter 13, I'll read one through seven. <clears throat> and I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads and ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to the dragon, or to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like this beast? Who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months, three and a half years. It opens its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, and uh, that is those who dwell in heaven. Also it was allowed to make war on the saints and conquer them. And authority was given, uh, given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. So we have the beast that has features of the lion, the leopard, and the bear. So features of the three preceding empires. Now we have the Roman Empire. This beast really matches up well with the beast from the fourth beast from Daniel, uh, who we, you know, in, in the book of Daniel, it, it's pretty clear that that refers to the Roman Empire. And you, just as a side note here, you really can't understand the book of Revelation if you don't refer to Old Testament prophecies. There, and Gage mentioned this a couple weeks ago. 
the structure of Revelation really parallels the structure of Ezekiel. There's tons of imagery from Ezekiel and Daniel and Zechariah that just gets repeated in Revelation. And if you're trying to read Revelation without reference to the Old Testament, you're going to go the wrong direction. So this is just repeating things that were talked about before and building on them and uh, establishing those prophecies in, in new and bigger ways. Uh, so th this beast has uh, ten horns again, uh, has seven heads. Now Rome was called a city on seven hills. And, uh, and actually in Revelation 17 it says that the horns are the hills upon which the city is founded. The ten horns are ten kings. Let's jump over to Revelation 17 real quickly and just show where the parallels there are. Uh, verses 7 through 10. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was, and is not, and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was, and is not, and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. Okay. Seven hills. The woman is sitting on the hills, and we'll, we'll talk about the woman in a few minutes. Uh, this matches up with the seven hills of Rome. It says, five kings have come one or, and have fallen, one is... This is written at the time of the sixth king. Well, who was the sixth king? It was Nero. We went through the list a little while ago. Uh, it says one is, or one will come, but will remain only a little while. And the, the, uh, the commentators I've looked at said this probably refers to the three emperors that come in real fast succession um, that last about a year and fade away quickly. And then the one that will come after that, the eighth, uh, at that time will be to the destruction. So, this is, Revelation is written during the time of Nero. And there's some historical evidence to, to say that um, John could have been on the island of Patmos during, around this time. Um, so this, this fits all right. And the, the indications right here, the chronology from Daniel and Revelation all match up well to put this at the time of Nero. Um, and to say that this destruction is coming within the next, before the, the end of the 10th emperor of Rome. Uh, so so that, that's, that kind of covers the chronological passages I wanted to mention. So, uh, so all of these prophecies really align well, and you see the similarities between these, these features that show up in multiple places in Daniel, multiple places in Revelation. Um, and then you can also connect in with uh, some of the things in Ezekiel that I'm not going to get into now, but some of the things about beasts and creatures with eyes and, and so forth. Um, there's some real interesting parallels there as well, but I'll set that aside for today. So 
Uh, let's talk about some other indications, not necessarily chronological passages, but other suggestions about uh, this, these events occurring in AD 70. So first of all, just want to mention the book of Revelation. The book is called the Revelation. It's not about the hiding, it's the revealing. It's, the book of Revelation was not intended to hide things from the people to whom it is written. It was about revealing and unveiling uh, and, and encouraging the people. And it actually starts off the very first verse of Revelation says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. So we're, it, it, doesn't kind of, it doesn't fit well to say, hey, these things are shortly to take place in a couple thousand years from now. No. This is written around the time of, in the time of Nero, in a time when the church is starting to experience significant persecution. And these things are going to take place within a few years, three-ish three years or so. Uh, Revelation 11, 1 and 2 says, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told... Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. So John is told to go and measure the temple. And it's in a dream, so he's not you know, um, actually going to the temple and measuring it. But in the dream, he's measuring it. And... This is not some future temple. This is the temple that, you know, there was already a temple that existed at the time he was writing this. We talked about that earlier. The temple existed. He was told to measure it and that the Gentiles would trample it for 42 months. Well, we also saw that the, um, in the, the other passage in Revelation, that the, the creature would have dominion and would speak abominations for 42 months. Uh, this... This has to be the temple that existed at that time. Um, the destruction of it was also refer, uh, prophesied by Jesus in Matthew 24, 1 and 2, when he said, destroy this, you know, uh, actually, let me just go ahead and read that quickly. Uh, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these things, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So Jesus prophesied the destruction of the temple. And he said, you will, you will see these things. Um, you'll see that these things are thrown, you know, destroyed and not one stone left. Uh, so the temple that, uh, that John is measuring has to be the same one that Jesus said, or Jesus said would be destroyed. And this happened in 70 A.D., uh, it doesn't make sense to say, hey, that immediate fulfillment that happened three years after John wrote this, yeah, that's well and good, but we'll, we'll have to make, put the Jews through that all again sometime in the future. John is prophesying about this temple and about 70 AD. Uh, let's go back to Revelation 13 again and talk a little bit more about the beast and who that refers to. So we, we've already kind of already tipped my hand a little bit saying Rome and uh, talking about Nero but the first thing to mention there's actually two beasts in Revelation 13 there's the beast rising out of the sea with the ten horns we talked about that uh, 
Uh, and then there's actually a second beast, starting in verse 11. He says, then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. We'll come back to that in just a minute. So there's two beasts here. So when you've got your uh, Left Behind series and different things that say, hey, the beast is this figure. Well, which beast? You've got two of them. So uh, let's talk about the first beast again. Um, in, we mentioned already in verse 13, he talks about speaking blasphemies for 42 months, which uh, matches up with the, the temple being trampled for 42 months. Uh, and then verse 7 and 8, let me call your attention to that. Uh, also, the beast was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given over to it, or given it over every tribe and nation uh, and people and language. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name was, has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life uh, of, the, uh, of the Lamb who was slain. So, this beast was given authority to make war on the saints and conquer them. Um, so, at this time, this is right around the time that Nero starts heavily persecuting the people of God. And not only is Nero persecuting them, you also have the Jews, the, uh, the scribes and the Pharisees that have all the way up through this time have hated the church and have also wanted to help destroy the church. So you have both uh, Nero, now Rome is getting in on the action, and, and both of these are... Um, persecuting and destroying and um, harming the saints and destroying them. And that's, uh, that I believe is what's prophesied right here. Then in Revelation 13 verse 18, this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast for it is the number of a man and his number is 666. Of course we've got lots of different um, literature talking about 666 especially within the you know the futurist dispensational literature about what does 666 mean and and so forth we can simplify this a little bit uh, Hebrew letters do correspond to numbers just like the Latin alphabet you have you know uh, I V C uh, L um, so all of the, those Latin letters are used as numbers in the Latin alphabet. There's also a numerical system associated with the Hebrew letters. And it was not uncommon for, uh, for names to actually, that were written in alphabets at that time, either in Latin or in Hebrew, to actually be referred to as a number. In fact, uh, there was actually graffiti found in Pompeii you know, the, uh, that was destroyed by Vesuvius, uh, there's graffiti there that was found that says, I love her whose number is 545. So people are, are doing this, are using names and, and writing them as numbers and, um, and referring to people in that way. There's actually also stories about a really insulting poem circulating around the Roman Empire at that time that notes that Nero is the same number as murdered his mother. And interestingly, uh, the reason this poem caught on was because Nero actually was believed to have murdered his mother. So you have these poems, poetry that was really trying to insult the emperor. Now, 666 specifically, if you take the Caesar Nero's name, Caesar Nero, 
from Greek and you transliterate it into the Hebrew language. And remember that Revelation is written in Hebrew. So we have people who are thinking in Greek and writing in, or thinking generally in Greek because that's the language they're using. But the writing here is in Hebrew. If you take Caesar Nero and write it in, in Hebrew, that number of that is 666. It seems pretty conclusive, but there's actually uh, an interesting side note here uh, that there are some later manuscripts, copies of the book of Revelation that actually don't say 666, they say 616. Well, that's interesting. Uh, it turns out if you take Caesar Nero in the Latin language and transliterate it into Hebrew, that you end up dropping one of the letters just because of the, the Latin, the differences in the Latin versus Greek alphabet. And the, the Hebrew then, without that missing letter, becomes 616. And the, the commentators that I've looked at said this is probably, this was probably some copyists that were copying the book of Revelation and said, okay, 666, we know that refers to Nero, but wait a minute, if we take Nero's name and transliterate it, that comes out to 616, we might have an error here. And they changed that to 616. Little speculative, but it's, uh, it is actually ties in interestingly here. Um, just as another note on 666, this also matches up or appears to symbolically refer to uh, Solomon in some way. So in 1 Kings 10, 14, it says, the weight of gold which came into Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. And at this time, this was when Solomon was bringing in lots of foreign wives. He was multiplying his gold and adding horses and chariots and bringing those in from foreign countries, building his army and his, um, his treasury and his harem and, and so forth. All of which was forbidden for kings to do in the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, I'm not going to, Deuteronomy 17, if you go and look at that, it, says, it forbids kings, of, future kings of Israel. It says when you have a king, uh, he is not to go and multiply wives and multiply gold and, you know, and bring in all these foreign chariots and horses. It's exactly what Solomon was doing. And it says the, the number of talents of gold worth of his sin, his rejection of being a, a wicked king in Israel with 666 talents. So there seemed to be some, some symbology here connecting the multiplying of a king of, a ruler of Israel uh, and his wickedness as referring, you know, tying in with this number, uh, which kind of fits with the people of Israel at that time, rejecting God, turning from the righteous king, serving the kings of the earth and their own uh, desires and persecuting the people of God and turning from his law. All right, so the, the first beast appears to match up pretty well with Nero, the Roman Empire and Nero specifically. Let's talk about the second beast. So, uh, still in chapter 13, verses 11 through 14. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. 
It performs great signs and making, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of the people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image of the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. So this second beast is acting kind of in a priestly role for the first beast. First beast, we said, is Rome and Nero. The second beast is pointing the people of the earth to serve the first beast and performing signs and wonders and causing people to worship it. Priestly role, which is what the people of Israel, where the priests and the temple, now the temple that is a rejection of God, a temple that is pointing the people to, um, to Rome, and let me jump. There's a verse I wanted to call out here. Um, I don't. Yeah, I may not have brought that or written that down, but there is a um, a passage in. Um, in John, I thought I had that. Okay, I seem to. Oh yeah, here it is. Okay, sorry about that. Uh, John nineteen fifteen. They cried out, "Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him!" Pilate said to them, "Shall I crucify your king?" The chief priests answered, "We have no king but Caesar." So the priests already at the time that Jesus was crucified, the priests are already saying, "Our king is Caesar." Not Jesus. We want, you know, we want our king to be Caesar. So they're rejecting Jesus, but they're also saying we serve Rome. So the the people of Israel seem to be, and the priests specifically, seem to be fitting in this role as the second beast, pointing the people to serve Rome instead of um, instead of serving God. So implications of this, and what is what of all these these passages really align well with Nero, the time of the destruction of Jerusalem, uh, and the the events that are leading up to it. Revelation 17, and we read through parts of that already, uh, describes a woman riding on the beast. And we said the beast is Rome, uh, and it says in Revelation 17, she's a harlot and drunk on the blood of the martyrs, and she's called Babylon the Great, mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. So we're talking about this woman that's riding on the beast, is, says she's a harlot, she says she's Babylon, and we already said, hey, these past, you need to read Revelation in the context of Ezekiel. I'm not going to read through the passages in Ezekiel, but I'm sure you can bring to mind a lot of mentions in Ezekiel of the harlotry of Israel and about how she's worse than a prostitute who gets paid for her activities because Israel is actually going out and doing it for free, and she loves the foreign nations more than she loves God. Um, so throughout the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, we've got Israel in, in her rejection of the true God acting as a harlot. Now we have in Revelation the woman the great Babylon uh, acting as a harlot as well, paralleling these same passages. This harlot that rides on the beast is 
Jerusalem. It's also the, first, the second beast, the earth beast, that serves Jerusalem, or serves Rome in, uh, in Revelation 13. Or, shoot, oh yeah. Okay, so, uh, yeah, so the, this all matches up well. The, you know, Jerusalem is destroyed, um, and the implications of that are that the people of God was, was Israel, and Israel rejected Jesus. And there's multiple passages that talk about Jesus being the vine and about the branches being cut off and new ones grafted in. In the book of Revelation, what we see is this final cutting off of those people that had rejected Jesus, that refused to worship in the true temple. Their temple is destroyed, they're wiped out, they are burned, and the people of God, the church, are grafted in. We are the new heirs of Abraham, the people that are raised up, the Gentiles that are grafted into the true vine. And so Revelation is that cutting off of the, the, old, the people who rejected God, of the, those who engaged in the harlotry and chose to serve the nations instead of the one true God. And it's the initiation of the true covenant, the true people of God as the church. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. Oh, yeah.